welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 120 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 13th of October 2013, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Part 52. And the Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. If you'd like to open your Bibles this morning to a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 16, be taking as the main text for our thoughts this morning, verse 18, but let's begin reading in verse 13 there. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's precious and holy word. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, we thank you again for our time together this evening, for this morning. And Lord, as we take time now to look into your word, we just pray, Lord, that you would take clear minds of any distractions that might be there, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, take and speak to our hearts. Give each one that which, Lord, is most needful this day, that each and every one of us may leave here in some way more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, it becomes completely impossible to review all the things that we have covered for over a year now of looking at the church, the New Testament church, the glorious church of Jesus Christ. But it's important that we keep in mind those things that we have looked at because, again, you know, the Bible is something that we build upon line upon line and precept upon precept. Many things become more clear because we have understood the things that go before it. You know, in in looking at the New Testament church, we began by defining that church, both the prospective church, if you would, that church that will be called out at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the present church, that present church that's made up of born-again baptized believers, that is the body of Jesus Christ, that is a building that is being built piece by piece, stone by stone, upon that sure foundation, the very bride of Christ that one day will be presented to him spotless. We looked through and we said, just because you call something a church, that doesn't, well, we looked not only at the defining of the New Testament church, but the design of that New Testament church, its organization, its officers, its ordinances, its, its operation through its focus and functions and finances and all of those things. If it is to be called a New Testament church, then it must be according to New Testament design, not man's design. 
And we looked at the duty of that New Testament church, our duty to Christ above all else, our duty to the commission that he left with us to evangelize, to baptize, and to teach, our duty to the common good of his body where he has placed us. We looked at probably one of the most exciting things, and that was the destiny of the church, the rapture from the earth and all those things that, that follow that, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we have the last couple of sermons been looking at this final bit that we want to look at concerning the New Testament church, and that is the defense of the New Testament church. Well, as we look in scriptures here, we see that Jesus Christ is very clear. Jesus Christ himself said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he even told us what he was going to, to build that church upon. And of course, that which was revealed to Simon Peter there, that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. It is built upon Jesus Christ and him alone. So we might ask that question then, well, if he has promised to build it, why do we need to worry about it? And some think that way. Some think what is going to be is going to be, and so we don't need to worry ourselves with it. Jesus will do what he's going to do anyway. If he not only promised to build it, but he promised himself to defend it, he said that he was going to build it and the very gates of hell would not, could not prevail against it. So why do we need to worry about it? Well, that's what I hope that can become clear because I said that we're going to look at really just two simple things. First of all and foremost, there is no other foundation except Jesus Christ. And second, there is absolutely, positively, no way that his church will be defended except through him. If we have anything to fight with, if we have anything to defend it with, it'll be that which comes from our Lord. So we find as we began to, to look at these thoughts, we looked at a couple of things already, and I guess the, the first is the occupation of the church. What do you mean? Well, we've already seen in all these things that, we're, that we've talked about that it's, it's a body of believers. It's people. It's not a building. It's not a structure. It's not a denomination. It's people that are bonded together in a common cause and a common belief. So why? Well, the simple truth is, is that without people, the church doesn't exist. It is a church that is being built by born-again believers that are bonded together. And he does that in a local area. And that's how Christ's work is accomplished on this earth as we've seen through so many things in Scripture. So the occupation of the church, I'm talking about if the church is going to be defended, Christ is going to do it. But Christ uses people. He's building his church with people. It's his people that he's given his, his, his commission to, the, the work to, to be accomplished. We've seen through both our, our study of the church and of the Holy Spirit that our purpose in being here is that the work of Christ can continue. We're involved in so many things, and we've talked about all of the great responsibilities that we have. 
But we have no responsibility that is greater than that one that we have to our Creator, our God, the one that has died upon the cross and given himself for us. We said that why should we occupy? Why does it come down to you and I? Why is it important for you? Is it important for you to be a part of a local New Testament church? Well, if that church is going to be there, it can only exist through those that are committed together. And yes, Satan has no power over Christ. That victory has already been won. But if this church is going to be defended, it's going to be Christ working through his people. I gave you, first of all, yes, yes, you should be a part of a New Testament church. Why? We looked at some principles of Scripture to start with because of principles in God's Word whatsoever. We looked, first of all, at the numbering of God's people, and we looked at all those things right from the time that God first called out a people. Those people have been numbered, and not numbered just in the case you're number one and you're number two and you're number three, but numbered in the case of, of being identified, being numbered amongst a certain group of people, being numbered with God's people. It's in the Bible all through it. But then we look secondly at the fact that not only do we see God's people numbered amongst his people, but God's people named. We find that in the New Testament scriptures, you see the first thing that happens to become part of the church in any way is the new birth, salvation. And once we're saved, what's the next thing that should happen? Baptism. If we're saved, then we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into that perspective church, into that invisible universal, if you want. We talked about some of those terms aren't really very good and very descriptive, but into the body of Christ. And the Bible says that the way that happens is that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. As a matter of fact, when he comes to get that church, those that will be left behind are those whose names are not written down in the Lamb's book of life. Very simple. You think God doesn't know your name? You think God's got to write it down in order to, uh, to remember it? God gives us this principle. He tells us that when we become part of his church, our name is written down. The parallel to that we've seen in that visible body again is, first of all, salvation. Second of all, water baptism. Every believer, their first step of obedience should be to follow the Lord in believer's baptism to identify with Christ and his body. It's then that your name is written on the membership role of a local church, the visible body of Christ on this earth. We said all along that the visible body should be the picture of the invisible body, of that which is going to be. So we see that it's a principle of Scripture because of the numbering of God's people, because of the naming of God's people, also because of the nurturing of God's people. What do you mean? Well, God has always taken care of his people. He's chosen someone to lead them. He's chosen someone to, to teach them, to look out for them, to, to nurture them along. Moses knew who he was leading. Moses knew who was supposed to be following him. It wasn't just anybody out there. It was those that God had given to him under his care, his responsibility. 
We see the very picture of Jesus Christ himself as that of the shepherd and us being his sheep. When we've looked at the church, we've seen that that then God has his under-shepherds. We see that the pastors, the elders, these have been chosen and put there specifically to nurture the church for the, for the purpose of the church, to protect them, to feed them, to care for them. How can you care for sheep if you don't know who they are? We find that we look just a couple of chapters over in the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 18. Notice what it says there, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse, pick up in verse 11. It says, for the Son of Man is come to do what? To save that which was lost. Folks, when we get away from that purpose, when we get away from that in Christ's coming and our being here, that we've lost it. It says, how think ye if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? I mean, you might have a hundred sheep out there, but if one of them's missing, you go and find that one that's missing. And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. He's happy. Because that one that got away from the protection, that one that got out there in the danger, that one that was at risk, to be able to bring it back from that is such cause to rejoice. He says, even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, God cares about each individual it's not his will that any should perish. This comes right behind the great sermon on the child text that where God gives us warning about offending those young ones, believe physically or spiritually. You see, we know that God's desire, he came to seek and to save. But then the scriptures have much to say, just like this passage about the importance in that shepherding of being able to, to nurture and to bring those back that, that have gone astray, which is, unfortunately, a sheep is going to do. <laughs> a sheep will wander off, and they're so innocent, they, they just absolutely don't even recognize and see the danger that is before them. So we find that it's important for the nurturing of God's people also because of the very nature of God's people. Keep, keep reading in this same passage here in Matthew chapter 18. And I know I'm going fast, but folks, I don't want this to be a lecture. There's so much. I want you to see biblically the importance of you individually, personally, being part of this wonderful church that we've been talking about for over a year, the glorious New Testament church of Jesus Christ, the beauty of it, that what Christ has done. He's done for your benefit in putting it here. Notice what he says as he continues on here in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Do you know that most of the problems within the church don't come from those, oh, I mean, man, there's some bad people out there, isn't there? 
mean, those people that, that just, they don't care about anything or anybody. They, they would do anything. And some of them, you wonder if they're even, have even got enough conscience to be called human. That's not our big problem. <laughs> our big problem usually comes from within. God divides, I mean, God joins people together and Satan comes along and divides and separates and, and tears them apart. Jesus Christ is building his church. He's putting those there that, that he wants there. Satan's great trick is to come along and to divide in some way. He says here, well, notice if your brother does something against you. It's not, you know, I mean, that's, that's another passage of Scripture. If you do something against somebody else, then you're responsible. But here, you're the one that's been offended. If you've been offended, if somebody's done something against you, you go to that person, he says, between you and him alone. You ain't told anybody else. You ain't going to tell anybody else what a low-down rascal that is. You've gone yourself, and you've tried to mend things. If he'll hear you, the Bible says, you've gained a brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. Okay? You've gone and you've tried. That hasn't worked. What do you do now? You get two or three more people. Usually that's when you'd come to your pastor, your elders, your deacons, those within the church that are there for your spiritual benefit. You're not going out there broadcasting it about. I'm saying, look, we've got a spiritual problem here. We need help to resolve it. You go to that individual again. You know, the purpose is that that person is to be restored. They don't listen. What does he say next? And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the, what's the next word in your Bible? Church. This is all about the church, folks. This is all about the church that Jesus Christ is building but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Well, there's a lot of things there. First of all, we need to understand that for the very nature of God's people, you know, recognize it or believe it or not, you might be a wonderful, born-again child of God on your way to heaven, but you're not perfect yet. Believe it or not, you'll still make some mistakes. You'll still sin along the way. And you know what will happen? You know, I, I, I can say this from the depths of my heart with no malice or anger or whatever. You know that people can get upset with you a lot of times and you don't even know what you've done. <laughs> people can be angry with you and you're scratching your head trying to figure out. Now, there's sometimes when you know you've done something really stupid. <laughs> Maybe they got a right to be angry with you. You ought to be doing something about it thing is, we're going to mess up. The nature of us is the fact that although the old man is dead and there's a new man inside, we still have this old flesh, and it's fallible, and you'll let somebody down, and somebody's going to be hurt over it. Well, the Bible's giving us the way that's supposed to be worked out. It's the church. You need to be part of a church. How can this even take place if you're not part of a body? If you're brought before the church... What does he say? And if he shall neglect it, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. What was a heathen man and a publican? Like a lost person. Or as if the person is not willing to be restored, 
then they have to be treated like a lost person. Can a lost person be part of the church? No, they can't. What do you do to that lost person? You love them. You're trying to win them. You don't, you know, start, you know, trying to, to be as vile to them as you can. You don't try to start looking, well, you know, you know, we're so holy and righteous and you're just such a vile thing yourself. No, the Bible says they can no longer be part of that church. They have to be treated like a lost person. We need to love them. The object is restoration. You see, that's the nature of, our, of us because of our humanness, because of our flesh that we still deal with. Now, if you look just a bit further over in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We've looked at all those things. The truth was is that part of what was taking place here was this needing to come, needing to teach so that they could behave themselves like they're supposed to. Now look. We don't need to spend time there. Have you ever seen people that were Christians, that were members of churches that did not behave like they were supposed to? Yes, absolutely. We find that <laughs> the truth is, is that it's important because it is the responsibility of the church, not the world. We can't correct everybody in the world, but we're supposed to correct those that are part of our church or part of our fellowship. We can look at other things, the very narrative of God's Word. You know, we've, we've seen that the church is mentioned some 115 times in Scripture. 112 of those is talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the vast majority of those are talking about the local, visible body of Christ, just like we have here this morning. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, look at how many of them are written to either churches or leaders of those churches. You see, it's vital. It's important. Why is it important? If we're going to defend the church, first of all, we've got to occupy it. We've got to be a part of it. How can you defend this glorious church? You say, but I'm part of the invisible body. Well, what good is that doing? That'll help you one day when you get to heaven. What's it doing for the church right now, for the work of Christ here? You need to be visible. You need to be active. You need to be serving. We find that, first of all, it's a principle of Scriptures. I'll give you these quickly. I say, I don't, I don't want it to turn into a letter. I want to give you a few things, and I want to really bring it down to us individually here this morning. You see, not only is it a principle of Scripture that I can give you many, many, many more besides what we've looked at here, but it's also the practice of the churches. It's been the pattern since the New Testament church right the way through, it's never changed, folks. You can look back even in the confessions of, of faiths of our churches, even, even the Baptist, and you'll find that it's always been. That's the way, you know, that you've got to know who's a part of the church. It's been the practice right the way through from New Testament times until now, not only because of the principles of Scripture and the practice of churches, but because of the practicality of existence. What do you mean? Okay, well, most of you can look at me this morning and you can call me a lot of things. A foreigner. I'm not a British citizen, even though that 
Well, it's kind of scary when I stop and think that uh, I've lived probably two-thirds of my adult life in this country. I've lived over half of my entire life in this country. But, you know, I'm not a British citizen. Now, they graciously allow me to live here and, and, and buy my food and do these things and fellowship with all you good people and whatnot. But you know what? I can't take part in the government of this country. When you can go to the voting booths and you can put your little ticks in your little boxes, I can pay my taxes. <laughs> I can complain just like you, but I can't. Why? Because even though I'm allowed to be here, I'm not a citizen of this country. I don't belong. My name is not in the right place. You see, the very practical thing is it couldn't very well operate as a country if it didn't know who belonged to it and who didn't, who its citizens were and who were not. If anybody in the world, anybody in the world can come along now, you know, they'll, they'll allow a lot of those people to come and visit. Folks, it's just common sense, practicalities. How can you be a church if it's just open for anybody and everybody from everywhere to come? Now, we love for people to come and visit. But if you don't, don't know who's part of it. If there is no membership, then the truth is, is there's no way to operate. We've seen in all these things that we've looked at the great responsibility. This whole thing kicked off over three years ago with this idea of contending for the faith that was once for all delivered. May I ask you something? How can we as a church remain what we ought to be if we're to remain biblical, if we're going to follow the New Testament pattern, how can we do that unless we admit only those in membership who have genuinely been born again, only those in membership of this local body that are in agreement with the doctrines and the practices of this church in all of our imperfections, there can't be a church. There can't be any kind of a unity. We can't stand where we're stand like we've been told to do unless we belong to each other. If we're to operate according to all those mandates that God has given us, we've got to be able to name and, and, and number a congregation to even carry out the business of the church. You know that we can't even exist in this place. Okay, it's Bethel Free Baptist Church. That building is not the church. The people are. But who owns that building? Who does that building belong to? Well, we don't know. We don't, we don't have any names. We're just people. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't operate. You couldn't even exist <laughs> if you didn't know who made you up and who didn't. We find that if we look at those things we've looked at for our very purpose of being. Do you remember when we talked about all those functions of the church? Well, I've kind of brought it down just into three things, those, those purposes. Okay, for, as a church, we're there for the fellowship of the saints. We talked a lot about that word fellowship, that, that koinonia in, in the Greek New Testament, that sharing with others. That, that join, that, that, that commonness that is there in our beliefs, in our, in our experiences, in our aims, and our goals, that which is 
a fellowship of giving, not expecting. We find that the very foundations of our fellowship in John chapter 14 and verse 17. John chapter 14 and verse 17, the Word of God says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. You see, the very foundation of our fellowship is Christ in us. Christ in us. We find that in our reading there in, in Matthew chapter 18 that, that we read earlier, notice in, in Matthew chapter 18, Notice what it said there in verse 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We could look at many things. You see, some of the things we've seen, and we're not going to go back there this morning, is surely you will agree, as we've seen in Scripture, that fellowship requires mutual affection. It requires mutual accord and it requires a mutual attitude. How is it possible to be members of one another? How is it possible to be that picture that we've looked at so many times there in the writing to 1 Corinthians there in chapter 12 of, of a body with all of its members and every member working together as one? How can that be? You see, the only way we can have that true fellowship is in the church, not only for the fellowship, but of course, the furtherance of the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We can look at all those passages. We've looked at it. We looked at our duty, our responsibility there. We find that unless you're part of the church, how can you be a part of that? The Scriptures knows absolutely nothing of those ministries taking place Outside of the church, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us beginning in verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I was in 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says there beginning in, in verse 12. He says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you, for we are come as far as to you as also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to hear or made ready to our hand, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. You see, our very purpose of being is not only the fellowship of the saints, but the furtherance of the gospel, the regions beyond, being able to reach those that have never been reached before. And of course, 
We've looked at all these things, the fighting of the enemy. We could look back in Ephesians chapter 4, and we could see that they come in there, but certainly one familiar passage that we have looked at is in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 when he said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting, exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The battles are going to get worse. Folks, what I want you to understand is Jesus Christ is the defender of his church, but he does that through people. He builds the church with people, those people that are born again that he himself is living within. It is vital, it is important that you be part of that body and everything that we've looked at that we can't possibly cover here this morning. I want to ask you one simple question. In all of these things, how does it really relate to you individually directly? Well, first of all, let me just give you a couple of passages. First of all, in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and notice what the Apostle Paul under inspiration here writing to Rome in Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 18, he says, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. When you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness in the end, everlasting life. How does it affect you and I individually? First of all, in this matter of servitude, we're no longer serving the old man. We're no longer serving the flesh. We're servants of Christ, bond servants. So it really comes down to are we going to serve Christ and are we going to serve his body, the church? According to everything that we looked at there in 1 Corinthians 12, you need to be part of that body, and you need to be working for the common good of the whole, not for yourself. Everybody's self-focused. What can I get out of church? What's the church doing for me? All the focus should be the other way. What am I doing for someone else? What am I doing for the body as a whole? What am I doing to make this a stronger church? What am I doing to make this a more effective church? What am I doing to help this church win more souls to Christ? We get so focused on what everybody else is doing and what it's doing for me. That's not the way to have a strong church. We find that the first thing is servitude. I want to give you three things that I believe would change your whole life, your whole perspective, your whole being. This matter of the church. First of all, servitude. Who are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Or are you serving Christ and the church? We find that the next thing is this matter of submission. That's tough sometimes. And it's tough for all of us. And if we 
if we don't find it tough, it's probably because we're not submitting. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, and of course we have a great passage here where that the Bible is taken and comparing the submitting of the husband and wife relationship, submitting to one another, the wife submitting to the husband, like that of the church. And he goes to great explicit detail to say he's talking about the church here. And, of course, the one thing that I just want to throw your attention to there, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And he goes on to make it clear he's talking about the church. You see, are we willing to submit ourselves one to another? Are you willing to submit yourself to somebody else? That's not easy, but it's a requirement. It's a requirement in a marriage. It's a requirement within the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead and read all those verses. He tells you in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The only relationship in this world that is compared to that relationship of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find that this matter of submission to each other, but then another one that's tough. And that we find over in Hebrews chapter 13. Notice what he says, first of all, beginning of verse 7, he says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have occupied therein. A lot of things could be said here. Folks, we got a better way than the Old Testament way. We got a better way than those sacrifices that, that had to be made, those temporary sacrifices. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all these things we've looked at, you see, the Bible makes it very clear that Christ has built his church. And it's Christ that has built that church and organized it in a way that he has placed those pastors, bishops, elders, whatever the different terms that we find in Scripture, he's placed them there for your benefit. Well, the Bible says you've got to be willing to remember what they, that those that have the rule over you. Notice what he goes down in verse 17 and says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Personal application. First one is servitude. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve yourself or are you going to serve Christ and his church? It's that simple. You have to answer that question. That's not said to be mean. That's just you can't serve God and mammon. The Bible says you can't serve two masters. Secondly, who are you going to submit to? Your own wills, desires, selfishness? Are you going to submit to each other within the body and those that God has placed there to be the authority in your life? And one final thing, Acts chapter 9, verse 6. Servitude, submission. Folks, we need to grasp this this morning. Acts chapter 9, 
Verse 6, we have a question recorded for us, a question that the Apostle Paul asked. Acts chapter 9, we find the account. Begins, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord gave him instructions. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Servitude. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve your own self, or you're going to serve God. You're going to serve the things of this world, or you're going to serve the things of God. You can serve Christ and his church, or you can serve those things. Second, submission. You'll submit to something, but what? Are you willing within the church, as he gives us directive, to submit one to another, to submit to the authority that he's placed there? Surrender. Are you willing to ask that question? Honestly, honestly, if, you haven't, if, you, if, you've, if your mind's drifted and you've slept through half of what I've said and all those other things this morning, will you listen to this one thing? Are you willing to surrender enough to the Lord today as the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus to simply say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? You see, I can guarantee you this. You might think God wants you out there just running ramrod and being the Lone Ranger and changing the world on your own. You might think God's got some different story from you. I'm saying we've been looking and I've given you so many passages that if you can come to me and show me any way in the world, that it's not God's will for your life, not only to be saved, but to be in his body, serving him through the church, through that body, being a part of it for the common good of all instead of just worrying about what's good for you. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that's what we see in God's word. Will you ask God? Preacher, let's go back to that very first question. You see, in light of, Matthew 16, 18. In light of the fact of Jesus saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, well, why does God need me? Why does God need me? Jesus is going to do it. Will you turn with me for this, just in closing this morning, to the Gospel of John chapter 11? The Gospel of John chapter 11 I don't have time to read the whole story, but most of you are familiar with it. You know that in John chapter 11, we have the accounting of the raising of Lazarus. We find when Jesus was told that Lazarus was dead, we find Jesus weeping with compassion for them. We find a whole account here that is a beautiful story, but I want you to notice something about this story. Look down in verse 39 of this account. 
Verse 38 says, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Now let me ask you something. This is Jesus. We said that he's the creator of all that is, that he's everything that's there. So did he or did he not create that stone in the first place? That cave that Lazarus was sealed within. He's getting ready to raise a dead body back to life. And yet he asks them, the people, to move the stone for him. Why did he do that? I mean, you know, was he weak? Was he incapable of moving that stone out of the way? If he's getting ready to tell a dead body to come forth, do you think it would have been a problem for him to move the stone? Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said the name Lord. By this time he stinketh, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Verse 41, notice the first words there. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot from grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Look, a lot of things could be said. I want you to notice one thing about that that I want to leave with you this morning. Jesus didn't ask them to move the stone because he was incapable. Jesus is not incapable of anything today. Does he have to have you because of who you are in order for his work to be accomplished, in order for his church to be defended? No, but his church is there for you. It's made up of you. He chooses to use people. That's why the church is here. He's using people to carry on his work. Are you willing to ask that simple question, Lord, what would you have me do? Because I can be quite honest with you this morning. God doesn't want you sitting back on your haunches doing nothing. God doesn't want you fighting the battles on your own, struggling through all those burdens and all those ups and downs and all those things. He's building his church. If he saves you, that's where he's placed you. Maybe you're just out there in that invisible body that's going to be seen one day. But he wants you in the visible body as a part of it. He wants you there doing all that you can to commit yourself to that body. So the defense of the church, we started in the beginning. Folks, churches aren't here just because they're here. Just because Bethel Free Baptist Church is here today doesn't mean it'll be here next year or five years from now. Many churches, many churches, the buildings have closed down. The signs no longer exist. They're no longer open. Not because anything's wrong with the buildings, because there's no people left in them. There's no people that makes the church. The church needs to be strong. But the only way the church is going to be strong is when together as a body we're all doing 
our part. We're all committed ourselves. We need strong churches today. Most churches are operating crippled half the time because half the body's not even there. <laughs> There's no way. If, if every part is important, what part of your body do you plan to leave at home when you go to work this week? Maybe an arm or a foot or a leg that you just maybe going to let it rest that day because you don't really need it. I'm saying you're important. You're important to the body, whatever part that you are. And for the body to function as it ought to, it needs all of its parts working together. What would God have you to do? If the church is going to last, if this church is going to be here, if any church is going to be there, it's going to be there because of the occupancy of the people because that's what makes the church. That's what is the church. That's what the Lord works through. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for this time that we can have in your word. And Lord, I feel absolutely that I failed miserably as far as trying to get across the beauty of the passages that you've laid upon our heart. The church is such a beautiful thing. It's such a glorious thing. There's nothing like it on this earth. And Lord, when you save us, Lord, you write our names down in the Lamb's book of life. And we're assured that whatever else we do, right and wrong and get wrong, Lord, one day we'll be called out of here because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But Lord, right now we're here. You've left your church here that your work might be accomplished. And Lord, just as surely as you want our names written down in the Lamb's book of life, you want our names written down in a local visible church down here that your work might be carried out, that your church can be strong, that it can accomplish that which you've left it here for. So I pray that you'd help us to be that kind of a church today. I pray that you'd speak to hearts. I pray you'd show each individual how important they are to your work. Lord, you could have just spoken. That stone would have been not only rolled away, it could have been disappeared and disintegrated. But you asked them to roll that stone away. They did. You called forth that. Lord, You've asked us to do this work for you, not because you're incapable, but, Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to be a part of it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.